Welcome to Sermons from Iceland, a podcast that highlights the most recent sermons from Lofstofan Baptista Kirka, a Bible-based church in the Reykjavik, Iceland area. Pastor Gunnar Ingi Gunnarsson and the ministry staff of Lofstofan are grateful that you're joining us for today's study in God's Word as a supplement to your weekly routine of meeting with your local church to worship Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The following was recorded on Sunday, August 14th, 2022. Today's message title is Nehemiah's Ruins Restored. We're going to start our uh, new series going through the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And uh, what, well, what, what we do, if you haven't been to our church before, is we typically not always, but typically work our way through the books of the Bible. And there's uh, basically two reasons why we do this. Well, three. Number one, we believe that the word of God is the word of God, that it is able to transform us and equip us for every good weed, good, not good weed, but good deed, uh, that it is able to help us in our walk with God, to inform us of who God is and to transform our lives. And so we that's why we want to stick with the scriptures. I don't want to just have a TED talk up here and throw a few Bible verses in. We want to be grounded in scripture as a church. Uh, the second reason why we do that is to pre- protect you guys from me. Uh, I have my theological hobby horse subjects that I could talk about forever. And uh, well, there probably wouldn't be a whole lot of people willing to hear what I have to say on those topics. So when we work our way through the Bible, we deal with what the Bible deals with next. And that goes to our third reason for why we do that is to protect me from you guys, right? If you come to me and say, Gunnar, you're always talking about sin. I'm like, take it to God. That was the next verse. So, uh, or Gunnar, you're always talking about whatever, fill in the blank. Well, typically it's actually, Gunnar, you never talk about X. And I'm like, we literally just work our way through the Bible. So, you know, like we will deal with it when it comes up in the Bible. So that's why we do that because we want to be built around the word of God. And so as we start Nehemiah, I want us to, first of all, so as you study your Bibles, one of the things that we need for understanding the Bible well is to understand the context of what's the verse, right? The context of the chapter, but also the context of when is this book written? Where is it written? How would the people in that day understand that passage and and so on? So I want to set the context here for the book of Nehemiah that hopefully informs how we interpret these passages. Uh, So on the timeline, the story arc of the Bible, this is happening around a thousand years after Moses walked the earth. And it's happening around 400 years, a little over that before Jesus comes on earth. So it's actually, actually one of the, one of the very, very uh, uh, sort of oldest, how would you describe it? The the last books of the, the old Testament. So if you don't know, up until when Jesus comes, there's been silence for like 400 years. No prophet came. No one came and said, thus says the Lord. And all of a sudden they hear this crazy voice in the wilderness and it's John the Baptist, right? So 400 years of silence. And this is right leading up to that 400 years of silence. And so as we rewind our way through the Old Testament, we go back to Genesis and there's this little little event where God creates everything. Right. And, uh, and then he creates mankind on earth and they, Adam and Eve managed to not ruin things for a whole chapter. 
Uh, and then when they disobey God and they go against God, uh, sin enters the world, death, corruption, uh, everything that we see, that uh, the horrors that we see, the destruction that we see around us is because of sin coming into the world that separates us from the perfect relationship that we had with God. Now, fast forward, we realize there, then and then, right in Genesis 3, God has a plan that there's gonna be this serpent crusher that's gonna come and he will crush the serpent's head. Uh, and we, we think about that all throughout the Old Testament, right? A lot of the people in Israel were thinking, is this the guy? When they saw King David, is this the, the skull crusher? When they saw his son Solomon, is this the guy? But every single time you see that the heroes of faith are also incredibly flawed, right? And we all said, amen, right? Because we can also be that way too. We have some incredibly good days where God does an amazing thing. And then we do like the next day, like, why did I do that? And we can relate to that. So we fast forward from Adam and Eve and we get to a guy named Abraham. And God gives a promise to Abraham and his wife, Sarah, that he's going to create a nation through them. And just isn't this the way God operates? They haven't been able to have a baby. And he's like turning a hundred and she's like 90. Like, God, what are you doing? <laughs> are you sure you want to make that promise? But he does. He makes a nation through them. And, and one of the promises that we see is that he's going to be a blessing to all the nations. Right? This, this, old man and his wife that haven't been able to have a child, God says, I'm going to create a nation through you, not only a nation, but you're going to bless the whole nations of the earth. And here we are. <laughs> here we are on this rock in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, worshiping the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God of Israel, because of that promise and God fulfilling that promise that he will indeed bless all nations through this man. So we fast forward. We get to Moses, right? He's leading the Israelites out of Egypt and they make a covenant with God. And in that covenant, they say, God says, if you follow my rules, I will bless you. If you follow my commandments, I will bless you. If you disobey, I will curse you. And so we fast forward. We see them disobey a little bit, do some things right every now and again, but then disobey some more. We fast forward, we go through King David, and then we get to his son, King Solomon. And when King Solomon dies, there's this whole downward spiral that starts to happen where the Israelite kingdom is split in two. There's Israel and there's Judah. And if you follow the timeline of Israel, they just have one bad king after another. <laughs> Don't learn from their mistakes at all. Just like, who are we going to elect next? Let's get a worse person, right? From the last time. And they just go worse to worse to worse to worse. And God is faithful to his promise. So the Assyrians come in and they take them away. We're left with Judah, the kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem is. And they have some good kings and they have some bad kings, <laughs> but then they get a lot of bad kings. And 136 years later, after Israelites, the Israelites are taken away, we have Babylon coming in. We have the Persians coming in and they're gonna bring judgment on God's people. And they come and they bring judgment the nation that was supposed to be the light to the rest of the world is now ruins. Decided to walk in darkness and now there is no light to the people around them. The well-off in Jerusalem, the educated, the power brokers, all of a sudden they're carried into exile as slaves. 
and they have no say in their own future. They are servants, they are exiles. And Jerusalem is on its way to become yet another city that we see on National Geographic or whatever else. We see these ruins of a civilization that used to be, but is no more. That was the path that Jerusalem was on even though God had promised that this was supposed to be the nation that was supposed to be light to the people around them. But in the midst of this overwhelming despair, God gives a promise, right? And here actually these verses are great to remember the context of the verse and what we can learn and how we interpret a verse according to its context, because there's one verse in here, you're probably gonna recognize it. It's a coffee mug verse. Right? It's like happy-go-lucky. Oh, this is awesome. You know, you never think about the context really. But here he's writing to people who have seen despair and destruction. They've seen people carried up into exile, around two to three million people carried off or gone, city in ruins that was supposed to be the city to the light of the world. And yet here they are. And this prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31 brings this hopeful prophecy. He says here, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill you to fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And here's the coffee mug verse, right? That we, so many of us recognize. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, the plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. That's a good promise, right? I understand why people put that on their mug. And, but there he's specifically talking to a people that are being carried into exile. And that could be true of us. But in this verse, he's talking about that. And then 12, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I've driven you declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So there God comes in through his prophet Jeremiah and he says, I'm going to bring you back. Look at all the despair. Look at all the destruction. It may seem impossible, but in 70 years, you're going to be back here. So if we go through the timeline and I wrote this down because it's, it's tough to keep track of these things. In 586 BC, Judah is taken into captivity. In 520 BC, uh, and and you can read this in the book of Ezra in the Old Testament, chapter six, they're sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Five years later, the temple has been rebuilt, restored and dedicated. And then we get to around 445 BC. There's a lot of people who disagree on this thing. A lot of of nerds out there that I'll leave it to them and their resources to, to fight over exact timelines here. But this is roughly it. 445 BC, Nehemiah writes, and we get to chapter one in Nehemiah, right? So all that, the precursor, and you're thinking, is this going to be a long sermon like last week? Maybe, Uh, no, maybe not. Uh, We'll see. Let's get through this. Nehemiah one, one through four. This is the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah. Anybody know Hekeliah in here? No, I'm just kidding. Okay. Now it happened in the month of Tislev. We all know that month, right? Uh, just kidding. <laughs> okay, I'll stop. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And then next, and they said to me, the remnant there in the providence who had survived the exile 
is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So we're going to just dwell on these four verses here today. You may say only four. That's my attempt to try to keep this short as a sermon, right? So first we find out that Nehemiah, we find out a little bit of what his situation is like. It says in verse one that he lives in Susa. That was the capital city of the Persians. And he lived in the citadel, right? Anybody here live in a citadel? That's what I call, uh, yeah, my house, the citadel. No, I'm just kidding. So the citadel is basically a fortress back in the day where uh, it was most protected against an invasion from an enemy army. And usually that's the place where the kings and officials would at least operate, if not live. And so right from the get-go, we hear that this is Nehemiah. He lives in Susa, uh, right? Susa, am I saying that right? (laughs) Uh, Susa, the citadel. Yeah, so he's living in the capital city, not only in the capital city, in the very most protected place in the capital city, among the wealthiest people there, among the king and so forth. Right away, we know that Nehemiah is probably well off financially. He's probably respected and influential in, in his circle. Later in Nehemiah, we'll find out that he's actually a cupbearer to the king. And again, remember the context. The, the context influences how we interpret things. So when I first read Nehemiah and I heard, oh, he's a cupbearer. I thought he's like a waiter at a sermon, right? At a, at a restaurant or something like that. So, so why is he writing a book and why is he in the Citadel? Well, it turns out that actually, if you put it in context, a cup bearer was one of the most uh, prestigious things to hold in the city. A cup bearer to the king was the last guy to bring the king his cup. Makes sense. Hence the name cup bearer, right? But that came with a lot of responsibility and trust. So the king is basically saying, I trust this man with my life. He is the last one to hold my cup, making sure no one messes with my drink or poisons my drink. He is the last guy to bring me my cup and the last opportunity to poison the king or mess with it, right? And so being a cupbearer to the king means that he is very influential. He's highly respected. He's surrounded by the wealth of the Persians. He's probably surrounded by the most luxurious uh, items available in that day which didn't even include a toaster, right? But they had probably someone roasting bread over a fire or something like that, right? But they, they, he was surrounded by the wealth of the nations. And so here's Nehemiah living in the greatest empire on earth at the moment when the king and top officials surrounded by respect, wealth, and all the best earthly comforts and food. But in verse two, we find a glimpse into not only what he's surrounded by or who he is, but what he's thinking and what he's feeling. He may be physically there, but in his heart and in his head, he's 1300 kilometers away thinking about Jerusalem. He wanted to know about the city and the people living in it. He couldn't help but think continually about the city he had never even been to. This is a man that's born in exile. He has never been to the city. He has heard people talk about it, the beauty of the temple, the, the greatness of the city that used to be. And he's never been there, but he keeps thinking about this city while he lives in exile, surrounded by all the great people of Persia. 
And listen to the words used to describe the state of Jerusalem by Hanani. It says the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Right? This is a, a depiction that's not really hopeful. Right? It's not really a description for a nation that you would think, oh, this is supposed to be the nation that's supposed to be the light of the world to the, the other surrounding nations of the greatness and goodness of God. They're survivors. The walls are broken down. It's been almost 70 to 100 years since the temple was rebuilt. And this is the report that he gets. So first off, he talks about remnants, right? I feel like we never use that word in our modern English, right? Anybody used the word remnant in a, in a sentence this week, right? Uh, so what, what we're basically talking about is leftovers. He says, the people in the city are leftovers. And he's right. So when the exile is happening, two to three million people are carried away. When they are allowed to go back into the city, we have roughly 50,000 people in the city, which to us Icelanders is like, wow, that's like bigger than Copenwood. <laughs> but, but to them, not so much. They are leftovers, remnants, which honestly should humble all of us. <laughs> they are remnants. He describes them as survivors. Right? Quite a hopeless title. It's not like, how would you describe yourself in one word? Survivor. Like that's not, I would hope we have something more positive to say, even though Destiny's Child did a whole song just about surviving, right? Uh, just kidding. No one, no one understands the reference to Destiny's Child. <laughs> There's one. <laughs> we, we would hope, they make it sound like it's really cool to just be a survivor, but that's not really, when you think about it, if that's the word someone uses to describe themselves, I'm a survivor, it's like, man, I really hope you have a better years ahead for you, right? You, I want you to be more than just survive, right? They were in great trouble and shame. Again, <laughs> not really hopeful words. I'm glad Hanani wasn't Icelandic when asked about this, you know, like, Hanani, what's the situation like in Jerusalem? Eh, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it didn't seem that bad, actually. <laughs> no reason to weep. No, thank God Hanani is not Icelandic, actually tells Nehemiah what's really going on. This is quite the description of a still devastated city, even almost a hundred years since the temple was rebuilt. And he goes on to say the walls of the city itself are broken down and the gates are burned with fire. Again, let's remember the context. This is 2,500 years ago. What does that mean? Okay, what does it mean to people back then that the walls are broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire? Is it just that they haven't gone to Ikea yet for good furniture? Is that, is that what he's meaning? Or it's like they don't have their dream white picket fence uh, up yet, you know? What does it mean for people back then? Here's what it meant. The distress of the people was connected to the state of the city wall. The reason that they were in turmoil and shame was because of the city wall. In the ancient world, if you didn't have a city that was walled, you had no defense against your enemies. And right now, Jerusalem was surrounded by enemies. An unwalled city was vulnerable, unable to give people safe houses or a place to keep valuables. If there was anything valuable in the city, it was easily raided and robbed, and there was no way to, to put a stop to that. 
The people living in the city were under constant stress and tension, never really knowing when someone would come for them or what they would do or take. Every man who worked away from his house were probably in constant fear over the safety of their, their wives and children. And yes, they could rebuild the temple and they had, they had rebuilt the temple, but it could never be beautiful because there was no way to protect it. Enemies could come in and take anything of value and go right out. So because of this, they were in great trouble and great shame as they lived by the mercy of their enemies. Can you, can you imagine what it's like? Put yourself there. You're living in this city that used to be great, trying to build a house. Every time you walk out your door, there's just rubble, rubble everywhere. And there's nothing to protect you or give you the chance to even rebuild because you're just trying to survive every single day. And worse yet, you have to rely on the people who hate you and are your enemies to not attack you. That's a very uncomfortable place to live in. They were surviving, they were not thriving, they were mocked by their surrounding nations. And the response of Nehemiah is found in verse four. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, God will eventually do something about this situation, but this, but first God would start by doing something in Nehemiah. It's so often that a great work of God begins with God doing something in somebody, right? There's like, God sees it. And this is one of the the things that's so interesting. (laughs) We are allowed to be a part of God's plans. Like I sometimes, I feel like a six-year-old who is helping his dad fix the car, right? That's what I feel like sometimes. I feel like I'm more in the way. I'm not really doing anything, but he's handing me a screwdriver and I'm banging on something and he's allowing me to be there. Like he allows us to, to be a part of his unfolding story in Iceland. And there we see in Nehemiah, he's allowing Nehemiah, like God is going to do something great about this situation, but he starts by doing something great in Nehemiah and pulling him into his unfolding story. So God prepared this a long time ago. He had his guy in Persia ahead and hard curious about the state of Jerusalem and its people. And now he's broken over the needy state of Jerusalem, the city that he's never been to, but oh, he loves so much. And God saw the need from heaven, but little would be done until the right man of God felt that need and God would start doing something through him. But Nehemiah couldn't do this alone, right? He had to be a leader. And here's what... If you're not familiar with preachings on Nehemiah, all, all the things are like about leadership. Like Nehemiah is a book about leadership and, and all stuff. And I'm like, yeah, okay, there's definitely lessons about leadership in there. But I think any book in the Bible is ultimately about the story of God and him being at work in and through his people and ultimately God getting the glory. That's still the theme in Nehemiah. It's not just, oh, here's a random book in the Old Testament about leadership, guys but there's a lot to learn about leadership in there. He couldn't do this alone. He had to have other people with him, right? And this is still true of the Christian life. We are not called to be lone wolves working in our own corners. We are called, and I feel how uncomfortable this is, by the way, I would rather be alone in my own corner. I I am there, like I am super like a loner 
That's my natural tendency. But God always, look at the Bible. It's almost always directed at a group of people, be it the nation of Israel, uh, be it the church, uh, you know, letters to the churches, to the Corinthians, the Romans, the Ephesians, Galatians. These are all groups of people. Almost never will you find something talking about a one person. So Nehemiah will have to be a leader and we will learn a lot about being a leader. And if you're in here and you're like, well, that's going to be great for someone, (laughs) not me. I just want to remind us, every single person in here is a leader in one way or another, right? Every single person in here is standing on some kind of platform in your life right? It may not be as obvious as me standing here with a microphone on my face and speaking to somebody, but I want to let you know, you stand on one platform or another. It may be a platform that speaks to two people in your life or three people or hundreds of people, but everyone in here, in one way or another, you're a leader. If you're a newly formed parent, you're a leader over that child, right? If you're at work, even if you're not leading a team, but you're a part of the team, a lot of people will be influenced by someone who's just naturally willing to lead and, and do the work, right? And be it if you're just influencing your family or extended family, or you work as a preschool teacher or whatever, every one of us, in one way or another, we are leading. And I guess the question would be for all of us is how am I, how am I leading? Where am I leading? <laughs> Where am I leading the people to? And so leaders must be prepared for a difficult work. It's not going to be easy. Because one of the things that I'm starting to realize, I was talk, talking with my wife yesterday about this. <laughs> so I was thinking about nine years. For some reason, I'm like, I know I just came from vacation. I'm so tired. <laughs> I'm like, it's, I'm, I feel like I've been tired for nine years. I was just telling his father, I was like, I don't think there's going to be a time in ministry where it's just easy. <laughs> like there's always something that's just, not the same, but it's still not easy, right? There's, there's always going to be trials. And that's the thing for all of us. If you're going to be a leader in one way or another, if you're going to lead, there's always going to be difficulty, right? So, so many of us, we, we talk about the victories, right? And that's awesome. That sounds awesome. We are more than, uh, what, are, what are we more than? Conquerors. <laughs> Thank you. We are more than conquerors. We're going to win every battle and so on and so forth. But let's, let's calm down a little bit. What does that mean? (laughs) It's going to be some battles. Victories only come after the battles and battles only come because there's opposition. And so when, when God says to his people to commit to build up, the devil and his people are going to commit themselves to destroy and tear down. But if you're going to lead, you have to know, what am I doing? Where am I going? And the first thing that Nehemiah did was weep. He wept. He fasted. He prayed. So he saw this great need, but the first thing he would start by doing is to go to the great provider. That's the first thing. It's not very, you know, he didn't put put together a plan, five-year plan or schedule. Like he just, he wept. Seems like a waste of time, right? (laughs) You're just going to stand there and weep, Nehemiah? No, he wept. That was his first step. He actually looked around. He heard about the rubble in Jerusalem and he wept. 
And I believe this, that great assignments are born in prayer. And I believe a praying life in my experience, and I think I see this throughout scriptures too, is not formed with habits and discipline. It's, it's formed with an overwhelming despair that you realize it's like, I don't, I, I don't know how to do this. I can't do this. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I'm tired. I can't do this. God, will you help me? This, this sense of despair. If you want to, if you want to have a prayerful life, like ask God to just reveal to you how much you need him. But in my, in, at least in my life, and I think I see it in scripture too, is pr- a prayerful life is not necessarily formed by like, oh, I'm going to put these healthy habits in my life or discipline. It's just like, it's born out of men. I see the stuff around me and I see how incapable I am. I see heaven and its glory and God's holiness. And I see how needy I am. That's how prayer is born. A praying life is born. But here, seems that this is happening in Nehemiah. He's broken over the state of Jerusalem and he is growing in his realization of realizing I need God. And in my experience, and I see this through scripture, it seems that God sometimes realize, uh, calls us to something. If you're ever wondering like, is this God? Is this me? Like typically if you just wait a moment and it's gone, then you're like, oh, it's probably not God. <laughs> it's just a crazy idea that I had. I have so many of those, right? But then there's sometimes when God calls you to something and he just won't let it go. He won't let it go. That's what we see in Nehemiah here. He didn't just pray and fast. It's like, well, oh, he fasted between lunch and dinner. That's great. Uh, you know, like, no, he, he prayed and fast for days. And this, this holy discontent wouldn't leave. It just grew. Actually, I was, I was thinking about this. And again, this kind of happens to be on our anniversary. Like, like, I was thinking about Svava having to watch me before we started this church for about two years. I would literally weep on my way to work. I would take every break and I would go into the bathroom. People at work probably had thought I had some really bad stomach issues, but I was in the bathroom and I was weak. I would weep during my breaks. I would drive home. I would sit in my car. I would weep. I would weep over like, like how, <laughs> why are we, why are we thinking about like creating bigger events as churches? Meanwhile, there's a nation around us that needs Jesus. Like who is like, we keep praying about revival, but where, where, where are people going to go? What if God actually answers prayers and he sends us like 500 people? Do we have seats? Do we have churches? Do we have pastors? Like, are we just praying this thing and we're not going to do anything about it? Like I, I remember just feeling the overwhelming despair and it just wouldn't shake off. And I didn't want to be a pastor. I hated the idea of being a pastor. Like I had no romantic feelings about this job and it just wouldn't let go. And if you're ever thinking like, is this God, is this me? Like sometimes you just know by him not letting go, you're just, no, you're, this discontent is going to hang over you. It's going to be there. And by the way, all that started because I prayed this stupid prayer, right? <laughs> God, I was listening to a song, break my heart for what breaks yours. Like, that sounds like a great prayer. Break my heart for what breaks yours. <laughs> Little did I know that my heart was going to break. And we read in Nehemiah that he just wept. What a bad use of your time. He just wept and fasted and prayed for days. So we come to this question, how does it, 
rebuilding of a wall 2,500 years ago have anything to do with us today? It reminds us that first of all, God is faithful to his promise, right? This looks hopeless. All of Israel has been led away captive, right? And now they look around and they see rubble and despair and disappointment. And they're like, God, how are you going to stay faithful to your promises? How do you have a plan that's good for us, that's prosperous? How are you going to stay faithful to Genesis 12 too, where you said to Abraham that you're going to make a great nation out of him and, and that you're going to bless him and that you're going to bless other people through him? How are you going to stay faithful to that? But well, we see later on through Nehemiah, through Ezra, that he brings his people back. And through this nation, God would stay faithful to his promise. All the earth would be blessed through this nation. Ultimately, that's fulfilled in Jesus. Right? He blessed the whole world. We are here worshiping Jesus who came through this nation. He would rebuild our ruined lives, not just walls. He would bring us out of exile into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus would come to redeem us who looked irredeemable, right? Am I the only one who's like agrees with that sentence? He would redeem us when we were just like that rubble in Jerusalem. That's what he did with me. He took trash and he made it into art. Somehow, it's like very postmodern when I think about it. Now he, he, he took what seemed irredeemable and he redeemed it. And by living the perfect life, he would die for all of us who are not perfect. Can we say amen to that? Amen. By living the perfect life, he could pay our debt. He would display shame with honor. He would display guilt with grace, forgiveness for all those who will simply receive the gift of salvation, to turn away from their sin and repentance and accept Jesus as their Lord, the guy who owns them. <laughs> he owns me. It's not my co-driver. He's the, he's the guy driving. I'm here for the ride. He is the one leading me. My life is his. Will you put your life into his hands and believe that he alone saves. When we stand before God, we don't have to shudder and not because we're so awesome, but rather because we point to Jesus saying, he has paid my debt. But more than that, from verses one through four specifically, I think it presents to a call to us who are listening here today, who are Christians in an odd way, especially in a society like ours, right? We really like comfort. Uh, I for one like ice cream, and a bunch of nice stuff, right? We live for comfort and luxuries and, and the things that make us feel comfortable. So this, this call to us from these first four verses in Nehemiah 1 may sound really, really odd to our ears, especially if you're used to comfort. It's a call to anguish. To just look around and see. Like, do you see the rubble around you? And, you know, like... I don't want to over-spiritualize the text. I don't want to take it as some kind of allegory. This is a real person, real walls, real people 2,500 years ago. But the way we can also remind this is remind ourselves of how this applies to our life. It's like, is there any rubble that we see? Right? Is there any rubble we see in society, in the church, in our personal life? There's some good applications all throughout Nehemiah. The great work of God began with one godly guy willing to weep, allowing 
his despair to drive him. And I just don't want to, by the way, I don't want to end there. Like, all right, everybody have a great week. Just be in anguish and weep and uh, see you guys next week. No, no, he allowed his despair to drive him to the throne room of God. He realized that he needed God to move more than he needed food. Surrounded by the earthly comforts and luxurious foods in the citadel in fasting, he reminded himself that the greatest comfort of earth pale in comparison to the eternal comfort of God. Now I've heard it said that if you're too heavenly minded, you're of no earthly good. That was always said to me, don't be too spiritual, Gunnar. You're too heavenly minded. You're going to be no earthly good. It's there thinking about heaven, longing for the day to die or whatever, you know, like. But as I read Nehemiah, I'm reminded of this quote by C.S. Lewis, that the reality is if you look at human history, you will see that the ones who did the most for this present world are the ones who had their eyes fixed on the world to come. The apostles themselves who, who planted churches that would outlast the Roman empire, right? Even Nehemiah here, who would take on a great job, not because of his greatness, but because he knew God was with them. I think about the people who abolished the slave trade, even at significant cost to their reputation or safety or social standing. And I think, okay, what made, what made them do that? It was not because they had their eyes on all the things that they could lose right here. They had their eyes on what they had gained in Jesus. When, when God's people take their eyes off of heaven and start to only look at earth, that's when God's people truly become ineffective. I think the danger is not that we are too heavenly minded and therefore no earthly good. I think the problem is the churches today are not heavenly minded enough. So we actually don't have an impact here on earth. And C.S. Lewis put it this way. If you aim for heaven, you get earth thrown in with it. But if you aim for earth, you get nothing. You neither have the impact that you think you can have right here. Neither will you have the hope in the life to come. And before Nehemiah would be used for anything, he would allow his heart to be broken over the broken state of the world, to be broken over the lack of light in the city of Jerusalem to the nations around them that testified of the glory and greatness and grace of God and his people. He would, he would hear the call to anguish and accept it. Like he would weep. And he heard this call and he accepted it. He, he felt his holy discontent and he just grabbed onto it. In his fasting, he remembered that man does not live by bread alone, but by the grace of God. His hunger pangs became regular reminders to seek what he needed most. Not earthly good, but heavenly food found in the throne room of God. And in prayer, he stormed the throne room of God, pleading for him to move. So what can a wall 2,500 years ago teach us today? We are still surrounded by rubble in our day and age. And just like the Israelites who saw what had happened, the judgment of God came upon them, not because of the outsiders, it was because the people of God abandoned God. The people of God decided to go their own way. And I'm, I'm here today as a pastor and I'm looking at the state of the church in our Western world, right? And I, I just see ruin. I see a messed up church because people abandoned God and not just people like, heathens and pagans. No, 
Christians, Christians living lives practically like they're deists or atheists who don't believe that God actually does anything. Some of us, we, we don't only see the broken state of the church in Iceland and around the world. You may look around your own life and see rubble everywhere and the task may seem impossible. But the book of Nehemiah reminds us anything is possible when God is with us. But first, will we hear the call to anguish? Will we weep over the broken state we find ourselves in and allow the, the anguish and our weeping to drive us to fast and pray? Nehemiah could have easily settled for just another career. After all, he's a highly esteemed politician. Why could, would he not? It's a very comfortable life. Why would he risk that? And so you may be in here today and you, that may have been your life until now. I'm just going to be successful in my job. I'm going to earn more money. I'm going to think about my retirement plan. I'm going to have a comfortable life. But Nehemiah would allow his heart to be broken. And I ask of every soul in here today, what will you do? Largely, we have abandoned God inside and outside the church. We seek to skip the call to anguish and move right ahead in our pragmatism to go to formula and, and best practices to seek to do what, what only God can do. And we have failed miserably. The church has failed miserably. It's never been so ineffective in a very, very long time. And society grows to be increasingly hopeless. And the church just keeps going into the cycle of insanity. What? Have we heard this quote before? What is the definition of insanity? Do the things over and over again, expecting different results. What is the church doing different? I think God is calling us to answer a call to anguish and weeping. Will we weep for souls dying every day without a hope of a savior? Will we weep to live in a country with church buildings scattered all over the place, but they are empty? There is no worship happening there anymore. It's no longer a hospital for the sick, bringing the grace of God to them, but now only empty museums of what used to be. Will we hear the call to anguish and accept it? Will we weep with Nehemiah over the ruins brought by God's own people walking away from God? And I'm on the firm conviction that God will only use a church that's on its knees. And that's what I would love to see too. Because then no one can say, oh, they're so great as individuals. Of course they're growing. No, it's just God. God is on the move building his church. Will you accept the call to use your gifts and respond to what is God calling you to do? Right? A lot of people may think, oh, this is something that the pastor should do. He can weep on a Wednesday, right? He gets paid to weep. No, no, no. This is for all of us, right? Nehemiah is not a prophet. He's a politician, right? The only good politician. No, I'm just kidding. Um, he's a politician that God's saying, I'm going to use you. If you would, he's a lay leader in the church. He's not a pastor. He's not a priest. He's just someone who hears the call of God and uses his gifts to do something about it. If you're in here, and you're not a Christian, I want to ask you, will you live for the world only? Will you live for momentary pleasures while foregoing the eternal joy of heaven? 
And I plead with you, don't waste your life. Don't chase the carrot of success or wherever you think hope is going to be and then find yourself on deathbed realizing only then that you've wasted your life and you're about to stand before your creator. You lived your whole life for earthly pleasures while foregoing eternal joy. Don't be so fixated on your retirement plan that you forget eternity. And brothers and sisters, we like Nehemiah have a reason to weep. What a great like anniversary sermon, right? <laughs> Let's weep. All right, everyone. But we have... We want souls to hear of the good news of Jesus. I don't know about you, but I'm not, I'm not here to like, man, we need more people to come to faith to, to prove I'm right, right? Some people seem to behave that way, unfortunately. I'm here thinking there's nothing in life that's satisfied other than God alone. There's no point in life if I don't know God and enjoy him. He gives everything purpose. He, he brings away our shame. Like I want my sons and daughters. I want people around us to know this hope that we have found. Not so that we could be like, ha ha, I was right. I knew it. You know, no, no. I want them to taste and see that the Lord is good. But before we go into our week, I want you to ask yourself, will you, just think about the need in Iceland. Will you pray the dangerous prayer of God, break my heart for what breaks yours? And will you just weep? Will you weep with us before we go into our plans, our 10 year plans and all the things that we want to do? Just weep. Just weep out of the love for God and willingness to see his glory displayed in his people. Weep for the fact that other people have not yet tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Are you willing to gaze into heaven to plead with God to reveal what he's calling you to do? What is he calling you to do? Right? Notice what Nehemiah did. He fasted. That sounds like, ah, oh, wasn't that just something that the apostles did? Let's skip that. No, no, no. That's something that we do as a church too. We fast. Maybe it's God calling you to fast and pray. And then think, because the Bible says, if you're a Christian in here, the Holy Spirit's been given to you and he's equipped you with gifts to build up this church. So when you finished praying, fasting, ask yourself, what, what is God calling me to do? What, and sometimes it's like, well, what does he equipped me to do? It may be something to do with Sunday mornings. It may that, oh, I want to help cook the meals after the service or I want to be in the band or help with the tech stuff or anything like that. But also, Maybe he's called you like we saw Anna sort of like, hey, I'm going to take care of the Ukrainians. I speak their language. I know their culture. I have in a perfect position to help them out. And, and like, it doesn't have to be just Sunday services. What is God calling us to do? So before we go into communion, I want to say, and this may be very uncomfortable, but I tell you this, if you're in here and you're not a Christian, if you take this step, we're not going to look at you funny or weird. But I want to ask, is anybody in here who's not yet said, I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm going to trust that he alone is enough and is willing to make that step today? If you are, would you raise your hand?
Okay. As we go into this communion, let us pray. As we remember Christ, let us remember this is the reason why we do all this, right? It's not to please God. It's rather because he is already satisfied. He's already paid for our sins. He already loves us. We don't go into this week to earn the love of God, but rather because he has already loved us. And so as we remember the broken body of Jesus and his shed blood for us, let us remember this and let us prayerfully think, what God will you call me to do? And will you break my heart for what breaks yours? So let me pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for your peace. We thank you for your offering. We thank you for your sacrifice on the cross on our behalf. We thank you that our debt has been paid in full, that we don't have to earn our righteousness, neither can we, but rather we just simply remember that you have died for us. You have paid for our sins. You have given us hope and new life. And so Father, as we remember this hope, I pray that you would be with us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Sermons from Iceland, a weekly podcast highlighting the Sunday teaching ministry of Lofstofan Baptiste Kirka in Reykjavik, Iceland. If you have a desire to see the gospel spread in Iceland, consider partnering with the Iceland Project. For more information, go to theicelandproject.org. If you live in Iceland or plan on visiting Iceland soon, make plans to worship with us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. Our address is Fagrating 2A, Kopavar, only 7 miles or 12 kilometers southeast of downtown Reykjavik. You can reach Pastor Gunnar via the Lofstofan Facebook page or by email. His address is lofstofan at lofstofan.is. Join us next week for another Bible-based and Jesus-centered message on Sermons from Iceland. Iceland.